This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. And today, where will the next debt crisis be? And when will it start? And what factors will lead to it? Steve Keen says it's already on the cards for Australia with house prices there already on the slide. But where next? And will it really be a crisis? Or can the economy absorb these falls in house prices? After all, Australia doesn't seem to be rushing to a recession just yet. So who next for the debt crisis? That's this time on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Yes, who will the next crisis hit first? But before we do that, first of all, Steve, I mean, we, we had an economic crisis in 2008. It hit just about everybody. But was it all that bad? I mean, it certainly wasn't the Great Depression, was it? We didn't have, uh, as we did in the Great Depression, people selling apples to try and make a living on the streets of New York and trying to support themselves. We didn't have uh, half the children in the United States not having enough food, housing or medical care. It seems, you know, despite this crisis, which as we are told it was, we were still buying our iPhones and our flat screen TVs. Uh, you know, we didn't have any of that uh, desperation that we saw in the in the Great Depression. So was it all that bad? Was it really a crisis? Well, we did have that desperation in parts of Southern Europe, because that's that's mm. not to be forgotten. We've still got it happening uh, in terms of countries like, obviously, Greece. And to give you an idea, like Spain is like at the moment, and Spain is one of the ones that had a serious level of unemployment. It hit uh, virtually 30% of the population. Uh, that's still running at about 20% unemployment. And uh, but we think we think of the United States as being the epicenter of all of this, though. And ten years on, yeah, yeah. inflation's low, unemployment is very low, share prices are up. I mean, people would say these are good times. Not as good as it gets, but uh, not that bad either. Well, I want to make the contrast as to what you know, what what did America do differently? I mean, that it didn't happen the situation that Portugal and Greece and Spain uh, ended up in. But it wasn't in the euro. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. in the euro. Basically, it's the euro. Yeah. And yeah. the reason for that is that it isn't just the, you know, the, the currency itself. Isn't, you know, it's not a bad piece of – it's a better-looking piece of art than the American dollar. Mm. I mean, give me, the, give me the euro any day as a piece of art. Um, but the difference is that the American government can produce the dollars it needs uh, for ex- expenditure. And its, it's uh, government deficit um, in the immediate aftermath of the, of the crisis, so 2008, 2009, when Obama came to power, uh, the deficit then was running at 15% of GDP. Now, the euro, uh, the Maastricht Treaty, puts a limit of 3% of GDP on the level of government spending as in terms of the increase in the government debt in any one year. And that was supposed to be fiscal responsibility, supposed to, uh, you know, it was actually called the Growth and Stability Pact. Uh, well, it gave us, it gave it shrinking economies and instability. So the difference mm. really between the euro and America today and then America today and America back at the time of the Great Depression is simply the size of the government sector. Because if you go back to um, when the New Deal occurred, we all, you know, we all have, we, we get taught the New Deal in history, those that still learn history. Um, and we know how much that was there. Some Austrian commentators will say that actually made the Great Depression last longer. Um, but, I mean, I'm, I'm going to leave that one, leave that mm. particular claim aside for but a we, moment. But, but we bought our way out of it, in effect, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, and we were with the Great Depression, the, the New Deal, it's very high. The largest amount of money being um, added to government debt by the Great, by the New Deal was equivalent to 5% of GDP. Mm. Now we know we know about things like the Hoover Dam project, the, uh, uh, the Tennessee electrification, uh, the, the building of the cross, the, the 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 road system across the states. A lot of it began under the New Deal, so it was huge in terms of industrial projects and so on. But in terms of the percentage of GDP, it peaked at five percent of GDP, whereas Obama's stimulus was fifteen percent. Mm. Now, why did it not seem that much larger? It's because if you go back to uh, the great. Uh, the Great Depression, government was about one-third the size of what it is now. So a 5% of GDP um, stimulus, which is what the the scale of the New Deal uh, reached, was something like half 
of total government expenditure, whereas 15 percent was was substantially less than half of government expenditure. Government's gone from about 10% of GDP, in other words, to about 30% now. Right. And what that means so you're, is... So yeah. you're saying that the, the, the crisis wasn't that bad because we've got a bigger government sector in that case. Yeah, and the, but what, what, what you get is when, when private sector spending goes down, government sector spending goes up because tax revenues fall and uh, welfare payments rise. And, of course, back in the Great Depression, you didn't have unemployment benefits. So the, the fact that people came unemployed didn't mean that there was government giving them money to spend. It meant they were out in the streets scrounging, as you said. And, uh, and that's the fundamental difference. So fundamentally, what you've got is, in the way I like to, the analogy I like to draw on this front, is that the government's like an air conditioning system. Uh, and if you have a small air conditioner and you get Arctic conditions outside, tough luck, you're going to get cold. But if you have a large air conditioning unit um, then, and the temperatures drop, your air conditioner goes gangbusters and you don't feel much of a drop in temperature. And that is fundamentally the role the government plays in the economy. Mm. And that's why, particularly the scale of the rescue after the, uh, after the 2008 financial crisis, that's why we didn't have the extended period of, of private sector deleveraging we saw during the Great Depression. So that's a good thing then. I mean, if we ignore the, uh, you know, the, the constraints that are placed on countries by the euro, which is a, a separate discussion which we've had, but when we'll no doubt revisit the, the fact that, you know, if, if we have a in inverted commas crisis, it's not going to be that bad because governments can step in. It's just a question of uh, foreseeing it and making plans on how you're going to cope with it. You're probably not going to stop it, but it's knowing when it's coming. Well, so the other tra- trouble is that uh, you still get one of the side effects of the, of the scale of the rescue is that the level of private sector deleveraging that occurred was nothing like what we got after the Great Depression. Yeah. So if you look at the the Great Depression, the um, the level of gov- private debt exploded during the Great Depression, not because people were borrowing money, because the rate at which they were paying down debt was succeeded by the rate at which GDP itself was falling. So right from 1929-30, you had people reducing their debt, which means they're taking money out of their bank accounts and sending it to the banks, which is reducing money in circulation and reducing demand. Um, but the demand, the GDP was falling even faster. So with the actual, the rate of private sector deleveraging peaked between 31 and 33 at about 10% of GDP every year, which is huge. But at the same time, GDP was falling by 25% per year, which is gigantic. And consequently, the debt ratio rose. Now, then from that point on, 32-33, you had a substantial fall in private debt and uh, eventually after the second world war as well the level of private debt compared to gdp was down by 75 percent so you went from about something when i when i normalize the data i think i'm not looking at the numbers right now but it's something of the order of debt falling say 120 130 percent of gdp down to 30 percent Right, gigantic fall, which is very different to now. So, for example, in Australia, we just haven't seen any deleveraging at all. Australia's just carried on willy nilly as though there wasn't any financial crisis, because of course they had they China kept on buying from them, so they were sort of uh, uh, excluded from it a little bit. But the deleveraging hasn't been that that strong. I mean, the US saw a little bit; it seems to have bounced back up again now. Uh, the the UK's, you know, most places in the world, it's fallen a bit, but not a great deal. Well, in fact, in Australia's case, it's gone up. And yeah, this, this that's what I'm saying. It just didn't stop, yeah. exactly. Yeah, That's right. They basically borrowed their way through the crisis, which means, of course, they've now got a bigger a bigger overhang of debt. So America America went from about 150, 170% of GDP as its maximum private debt level to 150%. Now it's rising once more. The UK went from 195 to 175, 170. It's rising again. So what you've got is uh, a, a huge fall in demand when it first hit. But then the, the extent to which demand fell being attenuated by the government rescue kicking in, large amounts of money turning up, um, interest rates being dropped to zero, people spending, therefore, not having the same pressure to reduce their debt levels, and therefore, you got a revival of credit uh, in those economies. Mm-hmm. But the ones that avoided the crisis completely, like Australia and Canada, did it by just going gangbusters for borrowing. So if you look at Australia's debt level after the financial crisis, it was about 170, 180% of GDP. This is using Bank of International Settlements figures. It's now 205%. 
So we've actually, countries that avoided the crisis back in 2008 have done it by getting more levered still. Is there a danger, though, in taking the, the figures for one country, that, that debt-to-GDP <laughs> ratio, in aggregate? Because, I mean, countries can be very divided. So if we look at uh, uh, New Zealand, for example, we know Auckland has very expensive house prices. Uh, in, in other parts of the country, maybe less so. So it might be an Auckland phenomenon rather than a countrywide phenomenon, for example. Well, the overvaluation of, of real estate is worse in the major capitals than it is in the in the provincial cities. That's true. But the one thing I'm actually looking at is the is the credit money creation that's going on as a result of uh, of private borrowing. And this this is what this is why you know I, I identified the cause of a crisis as having too high level of private debt. Uh, with too high an increase, increase in that level of private debt because the increase in private debt generates credit, which people spend. So your total demand is the sum of the turnover of existing money plus credit. Now, when plus credit, as it was in America's case, is 15% of GDP, and then two years later, it's minus, minus 5%, you've got a 20% of GDP turnaround of a drop in demand in a matter of one or two years. And that's what causes a crisis. Um, but the the so the it's most economists focus on what you're talking about at the moment, which is who owns the debt, what's the distribution, et cetera, et cetera. My um, my answer is it's the volume, stupid. Uh, and and if you if you forget about the volume, then you miss these effects because the distribution of debt is effectively a second order thing. The first order is the scale of debt and the scale of increase, which gives you credit demand and can therefore give you everything going from boom to bust overnight. So um, what what breaks it then? If it keeps on rising, uh, whatever rate, what what is the breaking point? You mentioned three variables in your uh, in your book in your uh, in your latest book about a, a tendency to to crisis. One is that private debt to GDP. The other is wages as a proportion of GDP, and the other one's the unemployment rate. The unemployment rate, of course, is is pretty low right now. So so tell me how those other two variables get entwined in all of this. Well, that, that's that's a very complex question, and quite ser- quite literally complex because it's explaining a complex system. Mm. Uh, but what what you have in capitalism is fundamentally a monetary system, and the reason mainstream economics doesn't know what happens in capitalism is they leave the money completely out of their thinking. So I've I've been, and this comes from their bias to try trying to derive the economy from what they call first principles of their model of microeconomics. Now they're micros nonsense. That's the major part of debunking economics is devoted to showing that their their uh, their arguments about what happens at the micro level are simply wrong. Um, but uh, that's their obsession trying to derive macroeconomics from micro. My point is to go the opposite direction, and so let's derive macro directly from macro, and actually take macroeconomic definitions. So the three that I take, which I think are absolutely crucial, are the employment uh, employment rate, the number of people with a job divided by population. And that gives you a measure of just how much of your productive capacity you're actually using. Uh, the wages share of GDP, that tells you how much income is going to one of your, one of your three major social classes, workers, the other two being capitalists and bankers. Right. And the third is the debt level, which tells you how geared the economy is. And that's uh, you know that's the level of private debt divided by GDP. So you put those three together, and you get a you get a model which talks about the distribution of income, which is what's left out of mainstream economics. Again, they ignore the distribution of income. They have this idea of a representative agent who's supposed to be a worker capitalist who owns all the firms uh, and works in all of them and pays himself a wage. Depending and on it, it just becomes a piece of lunacy. Yeah. Um, so, but, I, but I'm but I'm I'm saying let's let's start with workers, capitalists, and bankers. Um, so I can see. Right, I know. I, know yeah, you, I can yeah. see. I know you're saying it's a complex system, but I can see yeah. some of the linkages there seem a little bit obvious. So if you've got a a high proportion of wages are going to the workers rather than to any other sector, then you presumably going to borrow less you're going to need to you less need to get into debt uh, whereas if a higher proportion is going to the finance sector then you're more likely to need to borrow and in fact as you do borrow that means more money is going to go to people in the financial sector and that's basically what happens over time so what, what you have is if you have a uh, and, and the whole thing's driven by investment so if you have capitalists desire to invest depending upon the rate of profit uh, then a high rate of profit means them but they're more willing to invest which is a good thing this is mm. one of these ironies it's not a, not a bad thing at all but if they're wanting to invest more and they've, they've got to borrow money to do it, then, of course, that higher willingness to invest leads to a higher level of borrowing. And the higher level of borrowing 
over time, because the money is being borrowed to be invested, and I'm looking at genuine investment here rather than the Ponzi scheme stuff we get stuck at in the actual real world. But that, that means you've got more productive capacity, you hire more people, whammo, workers can demand wage rises and the serious end of the spectrum as well. Uh, raw materials producers you know, like the OPEC, for example, can demand high and get higher oil prices. That changes the distribution of income. So the level of profit capitalists get in the boom is not as high as they thought they were going to get because they're paying more to workers, more to raw materials uh, suppliers and more to bankers. The investment drops off, the economy slows down. Uh, you then have a slump where the raw materials and wages prices and wages fall relatively. Um, you pay down some of the debt, but you get back to the point where you have the same level of rate of profit that, in, that first of all set the boom off, leading capitalists to want to invest again, off they go, borrowing money to do it. And you start with a higher level of, uh, the, of income going to the banking sector than the previous boom and a lower level going to workers. So even though in my model, I mean, this is me explaining verbally my model now, um, even though in my model, um, Capitalists are the only ones doing the borrowing, and, and they're doing it to build borrow money to build factories. Uh, it's the workers who pay for it out of a lower wages share, mm. uh, and so you, you, it's a three-way equation, not a two-way equation. Which is, if neoclassicals ever think about the distribution of income, they think workers versus capitalists. They don't think workers and capitalists versus bankers, which is what actually turns up in my model. But how does that work in Australia's case then? Because Australia has this very high debt to GDP ratio. It's got unrealistic house prices so people are borrowing a lot to buy their houses and yet their wages are still high so money might be going to the finance sector but people are still doing well i mean they've got some of the highest wages in the world in australia in the world you do but in terms of distribution of income within each country it, it gets biased towards the finance sector and away from the workers mm. so the that that's the real danger because this can go on for a, a while but what you get each time is a boom and bump in the level of private debt so i'm looking at the private debt data for australia right now and you see back in 19, the 1960s it was about 50 percent of gdp you then had the uh, gradual increase until the boom under Hawke and Keating when it hit about 125% of GDP. Then it dropped in the, in the recession of the 1990s to about 110%. It then rose to the during the GFC to about 180%. It fell in the aftermath. Now it's 210%. So each time that's happening, you're getting a ratcheting up of the amount of income uh, the, the, the claims the financial sector has on the, on the real output of the economy. And that claim comes at the expense of workers. Right. Uh, so average wages look happens. good because the finance sector is paying themselves more and more. So we, we presumably are getting a, a bigger wage divide in that case. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you, you look at the, I mean, I, I, I must, still the, the, the most, um, for, for me, this is talking the UK, but I think it's, it'd be comparable in you know places like the so-called millionaires factory of Macquarie Wank, pardon me, bank. Um, um, that's, I met, I met a, a character in the finance sector here in, in the UK when I first arrived and his wife uh, turned up to the dinner and in a conversation revealed that her salary when she did work in the finance sector was £750,000 a year. Mm. Now that would turn up as a wage. Now that that was roughly ten times what I was earning to be a professor at Kingston. Yeah. So um, yeah, when 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 we record the data and record the wages being paid in the financial sector as part of the overall wages bill, we're fundamentally distorting our view of what's happening in distribution of income. Right. And but how does how does that happen? So you've got a small number of people who are earning so much money; they're making it in uh, you know primarily in in housing loans. Those housing loans have to go to everybody else. How is everybody else affording it? Well, the answer obviously is that they. Ra- ratchet up more uh, more private debt, but there's still standards in terms of, you know, that you, that you have to meet uh, to, to take out those loans, uh, you know, and governments have been trying to tighten those regulations up to ensure that uh, housing loans are affordable. How does that model continue? Is that your point? It won't. It will break at some point. Yeah, it doesn't continue because it's all based on myth. And this Mm. this is the the wonderful thing about the. um, I'm sure you've been following it about as much as I have. The uh, Royal Commission into Misconduct in the Banking and Financial Services Sector Mm. in Australia. And my absolute favourite document from that. I'm I'm sure I can find better, but this one's pretty damn good. uh, Was the National Australia Bank's table? uh, It's Living Expense Calculator, as it's called. And if you take a look at this thing, which I've linked on my one of my most recent blogs on the website, on the on the Patreon website, 
uh, let's say, look at, yeah, it tells you that a couple earning $60,000 a year, which you know, like in American dollars, that's about 40000 that company is earning $60,000. Um, that couple, it, yeah. A couple uh, before tax who'd be paying no more than, uh, there's a maximum 20000 in tax, probably far less than that. So let's say they're taking forty forty five thousand um as their income level this calculator presumes they're spending twenty four thousand dollars a year living on twenty four thousand and therefore have sixteen thousand dollars a year they can use to take out a mortgage now that's not quite that doesn't quite give you the scale of the ridiculousness of this document but my favorite one that does uh, is what they're saying for a couple earning four hundred thousand australian dollars a year or more now you and i both know that's an extremely princely sum uh, that's you know each of them earning two hundred thousand, uh, so they're earning four hundred thousand. That that would give them a, a, a disposable income of about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, which is say twenty thousand dollars a month. This calculator presumes they're spending less than four thousand. Yeah, that is no. Partner, they will be total bullshit. <laughs> Fine but, dining, but, I'm sure, but, every night if they're on that money. Yeah, no, yeah. but it, 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 we, we have Ebenezer Scrooge married to Swabian's housewife. That's this calculated vision of of the consumption of the average Australian. No, I'm sorry, there wouldn't be a Prada shop in the country if that were true. It's ludicrously, it's total farce. And people who are reading off these numbers and working out what people can afford. They'd have to be—you have to be stoned um, on a, on a variety of substances, just able to read off the numbers. But for God's sake, don't do any calculations to work out what they imply. Just to go a bit further here, the same same number: somebody, a, a single person, earning four hundred thousand dollars a year or more, therefore having a single individual disposal income of over. $20,000 a month. The calculator presumes that person was spending $3,000, $3,041 a month. Now, everybody you know is Ebenezer Scrooge on this thing, but even better, even better. What's the cost of a child? Now, you've got to have any kids have you got? I've got just the two. That just I, the two. That, that I know of. And uh, shitloads is the answer to that question. And they're not even teenagers yet. No, you made a big mistake by moving from Australia to the UK because, mm. according to this calculator, it costs you to raise a child. I'm not talking, you know, pocket money. I'm talking education, right. transportation, yeah. iPhone. Okay. Seven quid. Seven costs you seven, seven US dollars a week. Right, well, that would be interesting, except one in three kids in Australia now go to a private school, and private schools are about 20000 a year. Yeah. So uh, that, uh, Magically, that well for- it turns into seven. Seven dollars <laughs> a week. And that's before I mean, they eat or wear clothes or go on holiday or anything like yeah. that. Yeah, this is fraud. Mm. There's no other way. This is absolute, total, outright fraud. Mm. And it's disguised because it's done in a neutral little fashion. Just read off the numbers. For God's sake, don't calculate what they mean. So just give me an idea. Couple on three on $400,000 a year or more gross salary, which means a quarter of a million per year in Australian dollars, which is about, a, put that America list is about $180,000 a year. Um, let's go back to the, the Australian numbers just to make the comparison uh, easier to to keep a track of affordably. So you're earning 400000 before tax. You're supposed to be spending 4000 less than 4000 a week. Uh, if you have a child, your spending goes from 3716 to 3924 a month. So that kid is costing you about 200 bucks a, a month mm. to support. What? Absolute crap. Yeah. Well, you know, if you, if you don't feed them. Uh, but look, the um, housing affordability is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because you would have thought, okay, in a, and we know Australia's got a housing affordability issue, and we know we know that that is being driven by debt, and that is, as you're saying, it's because of the uh, uh, unscrupulous activity of the banks that just aren't aren't being realistic in the loans that they're issuing. And yet, by your own looking at some charts, you know, from a blog on uh, on Patreon, you've indexed real house prices as one hundred in nineteen seventy five. Mm. Australia moves to uh, just under three hundred now. The UK is uh, is is about three hundred and sixty. So that would mean house prices have skyrocketed more in the UK, despite the level of debt that we've been seeing in Australia. How does that happen? 
Well, because basically this is driven by the this, this is a, the complex Russian answer bias. once more. Mm. It's driven by the acceleration of mortgage debt, and you can have this ironic outcome of, uh, and particularly is obvious in the Irish data. Of course, you can have virtually falling um, level of, of household debt, but accelerate that, that the, it's falling at, an, at, a, at a slower rate, and that ends up with an acceleration over time so this crazy crazy chart that's figure one on the um on the australian housing uh they call it australian housing bubble pops uh blog you have irish house prices rising from an index pretty much 100 in 1995 it's 120 but it's pretty much like i started the data from 1975 so the irish house prices in 1985 were still about the same in real terms as they were in 1975 so in 1985 and 2005 increased by a factor of four and when you take a look at what the hell was happening to the level of irish debt at that time um nothing was happening well, there's no actually unfortunately no irish debt data um at least published by the bank of international settlements before 2002 or 2003 but at that state household debt was 50 percent of gdp that's 2003 by 2010, to the seven years, it was 120% of GDP, and now it's back down to 50% again. So they've got this huge pimple of, of Irish debt rising and falling. The behaviour of house prices has been, since 2003, to, to virtually double, then to fall to about um, 1.8 times what they were back in 1975 uh, by 2012-13. And now they're back up again to about three times what they were. So the prices have risen while household debt's been falling. And that's, you look at it and that's a paradox. You think, how the hell can that be explained? Uh, it comes down to the relationship between um, the, the demand, flow of demand and flow of supply and the flow of demand for new housing is fundamentally new mortgage debt divided by the price level. Interest is, rates, interest yeah. rates have got a part to play in all of this, though, haven't they? And they I mean, they're determined. Yeah, they do. Well, they're they're, they're, what, they're, they're, in part, they're determined by central banks. Obviously, they're determined by what banks, uh, uh, high street banks, feel they can get away with. But also, obviously, the cost of that borrowing is determined by central banks. They look at inflation and employment; both are low. So, if inflation is low, um, then uh, you know, if people are carrying too much household debt. That leads to low inflation, doesn't it? Because they think they can afford to buy less, so GDP is constrained. Therefore, um, central banks go, okay, well, we're not going to push interest rates up too much. So I guess that sort of makes the situation it, worse it in a way. It encourages people into the volume of debt. And this is yeah, one thing I've yeah. identified in Australia back then before the crisis. It perpetuates well, it. Pardon? It perpetuates it because it makes yeah, the, it, 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 it takes because- the bad situation where people have got so much debt, therefore they're not borrowing, therefore uh, interest rates are low, therefore they borrow again. Yeah, and what the, that gives you, while that continues happening, you get more demand coming out of that extra credit people are taking out, but you're getting squeezed into a corner. And I show this on a, on a rectangular hyperbola graph. I'll have to reproduce it um, for the, the Patreon blog at some point. But what I had was, if you look at the overall level of debt service, it's a function of the level of debt and the rate of interest and then you can draw a rectangular hyperbola showing you know let's say if you if you're paying say 10 percent of your income uh, as debt service that can be because your debt levels a thousand percent of gdp and the interest rate is one percent or it can be because your debt levels uh 100 of gdp and the interest rate is 10 percent you've got this trade-off between the two and what happens if you have falling interest rates um then that enables people to take out more debt and the overall debt burden remains constant as interest rate falls, but you finally get to the point where you owe an absolute fortune. And then even if the rates are low, you look at the amount of debt you've got to take out to, uh, to, to get into the housing market and you think, no, thanks. I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to lever my, uh, my income by a factor of 10, which is what's actually ultimately required to buy a property so the demand disappears and when it does that credit demand you've been relying on suddenly evaporates and down mm. goes your economy and that's the situation Australia is finding itself in right now. Right and the US is not. I'm just wondering whether uh, historic bank 
lending rates have had something to do with this. Forget the interest rates from the central banks. Because if you, just looking around just before we started talking, I went to see how much it would cost me to take out a loan in various countries. The best loan you can get in Australia is around 3.9%, uh, mm-hmm. the interest rate. It's about the same in Canada. You can get it for 3.6% in the UK. In the United States, you'd be struggling to get it for more than uh, for anything less than 4%. And even then, you've got to lock yourself in for a long time. Whereas in the UK, everyone sort of like moves their mortgage every year almost to get to get a better deal. But uh, 4% or more locked in is the is the US experience. So it costs more to borrow money in the United States right now. And is that part of uh, So the banks presumably are uh, behaving themselves a little bit more. No, in fact, you, 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 could, you could get right about that point about the interest rate because what's actually happening now, and this is why I expect a slump in America in 2019, uh, possibly 2020, is that because the people managing central banks do not recognise the importance of either private debt or credit, they are simply looking at their models of the economy. And to back to a little earlier conversation when I was verbally describing how my model functions, that's what I was literally doing. I was telling you what happens in the mathematical model that I've built of the capitalist economy. They do exactly the same thing. Now, my mathematical model includes a level of private debt. Theirs does not because according to their logic, credit plays no role in aggregate demand. It simply distributes spending power from the borrower to the saver. And when it's from the saver to the borrower when it's going up and from the, from the borrower to the saver when it's going down and the two cancel out. So they leave it out of their picture. And all they're looking at is, oh, they've got this equilibrium uh, where the economy is in long-run equilibrium when the, uh, when the, uh, when the um, rate of inflation is 2%. The rate of economic growth is 3% and the rate of interest is 4%. And that's the magic spot they think they're heading towards. Now, what they're doing by putting the rates up towards 4%, and of course, that's you're looking about, you're talking about mortgage rates. Yeah. They're, 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 they're anticipating where the central bank's going to go. That's obviously. right. The central bank is getting towards, heading towards 4%. Mm-hmm. When you hit 4% mortgage rate and you've got a debt level of one and a half times GDP, which is America's case right now, then that means fully 6% of GDP on, on average, or maybe like a minimum, because that's mortgage rates are lower than business rates, um, 6% of GDP is going to the finance sector. Yep. Now, at that level, um, that's taking a whack out of, out of uh, ordinary workers' ha- uh, pockets. It's taking a whack out of, out of capitalist uh, profit as well. At that point, people start thinking, oh, I'm, I'm not going to take out that housing loan or I'm going to pay off some of the debt I've got. And what you see is an unexpected, inverted commas, unexpected uh, decline in demand for housing. And, and that's what's happening in America right now. We're seeing a dramatic fall off in demand for new housing. So what that can lead to is the private sector goes from leveraging up, which, which America's been doing for a while now, to deleveraging. And within bang, you'll go back into another slump again. But so, I mean, is it a crisis? Because I mean, which is, you know, getting back to my first question. So if we look at what's happening in Australia right now, it would seem that people have reached that point where they say, look, I can't, this is ridiculous. We can't afford to buy anymore. Uh, we can't, certainly can't afford to buy at, at, at these rates. Sydney house prices have fallen as a result, just under uh, 10% since the end of last year. And there's quite a few commentators, not just you now, saying, well, actually, maybe it's got another 10% to go. Maybe it's going to be 20% down uh, as a result of all of that. Uh, and maybe that's why Australian GDP is down. But Australian GDP isn't down a great deal. It's still growing at 2.8% a year. So this is a country a long way from, from recession. It seems a long way from crisis proportions. It seems to be well, able to suck up this fall, fall so the, far. The last figure just came out earlier this morning, and it's 0.3%. Um, oh, yeah, but not year on year. No, well, that, that, the, 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 the growth of the quarter is yeah. point three. That's down yeah. to one point. If you actually annualise yeah. the way the Americans do, multiply by four, yeah. then you're down to one quarter, of, you know, one point two percent, which is a lot lower. Yeah. So the, I think the slump is is starting to strike Australia right now. Um, so yeah, it's it's but the the difference between but it's Australia not a recession. America, it's not a recession. Still not a recession though. Not yet, but I think it will be. I mean, I think it's, mm. it's, Australia's had the world's longest running. Uh, uh, period without a recession. And the reason for it, it's had the world's longest running housing boom with the world's longest running credit financing that housing boom. And then back to the, uh, the argument I was making about what actually drives house prices, it's change in new mortgages. The, the new mortgages determine the price level, change in new mortgages determine whether the price level rises or falls. And when you look at the data from 1990, which I've done in that blog post, uh, the average increase in new mortgages every year in Australia is running at 0.4% of GDP. Now, that's a lot. 
when you think about that's the change in the change in mortgage debt, mm. equivalent to half a percent of GDP every year. That's one hell of a boost, not just to the housing market. It's a boost to the overall economy as well, because the people who borrow that money spend it on people who buy, who you know, sell their houses to them and then you know, either upgrade or they go and uh, buy, the, buy that Lamborghini they were after. What you get is an increase in demand coming out of it. And that's, that's like a, that's a substantial amount of, you know, pedal to the metal, uh, accelerating demand as well. So what you get is in, in countries like Australia that are doing it, credit demand after the crisis is running at 10 to 15% of GDP. Now in America, uh, it's flatlining at 7% and uh, Australia is now starting to join the downward trend in, in credit-based demand, but it's going to be falling from a much higher point uh, than America would do at the moment. And, and that's the trick. You have a crisis when you have high credit demand going to negative credit demand. America's going to have low credit demand going to negative credit demand. So it'll have a bit of a slump. But Australia's the one that's going to have the real crisis. And out of those variables that you gave, I mean, we've been talking about debt to GDP ratio, household debt to GDP ratio. Is there is there a trigger point at which at which we can say, well, okay, that's where, that's where things start to turn. You mentioned those other variables of unemployment, which I would have thought would have been more a consequence, but, but the, the amount of money that's going to the finance sector, can we point and say, well, when uh, debt levels get to this level and so much of the proportion of GDP is now being soaked up by the finance sector, that's the point at which we start to turn. Can, can, can that be modelled? Roughly. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be a rule of thumb thing and it's affected by many other factors as well, including the size of the government sector and whether you're going to a trade surplus or not. Mm. Uh, but like in terms of sort of rule of thumb warnings, the ones that uh, my colleague, uh, the, the American billionaire philanthropist Richard Vague uh, has identified, he said it's any, anything over 1.5 times GDP is a debt level and anything over 10% of uh, of, of, of demand being credit-based. And on that front, um, the countries that qualify, um, and of course, you know, if you have more Yeah, let's than- reel them off. Let's go through okay. them. Okay. Australia. Yeah. Definitely. Canada. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I'll just actually go through my Canada, list. Canada, who's, who's been lifting their interest rates this, uh, th- this year, but then decided to stop because they weren't quite so sure how their economy was progressing. So uh, maybe they should push them up. Yeah, <laughs> quickly. Belgium yeah. is is another possibility, but the the Australia and Canada both have trade deficits. Yeah, and from my way of thinking, which of course is different to modern monetary theory on this front, I'm happy to talk more about that at a later stage. Um, that to me, running a trade deficit means you have less cash creation coming out of the export sector, so um, you're more vulnerable. Whereas countries like Belgium, with a large trade surplus, the trade surplus can make up for the for the um, uh, absence of credit. So, so, so far, I'd say Australia, Belgium, uh, Canada, yeah, China. But China, of course, has got enormous government spending and a trade surplus as well. Yeah. So, doesn't that help? And can't they? I mean, can't they? Uh, I mean, they're they're doing everything they can, aren't they, to try and look after their domestic economy? Can't they just become a bit more insular to get over the problem? And they can. That's that's one of the strengths they have. They're really they're using the power of government money creation quite effectively. France, mm. which of course is a fun one right now, because France France is just I mean, gradually sailing up with an increased level of private debt ever since the euro began, from going from about 130 percent of GDP to about 180 percent now, and that permanent credit boost is going to run out at some point. It may be what we're running out right now. But that GDP uh, ratio uh, is way lower. Debt to GDP ratio is way lower than you know some of the other problem countries that we've talked about. And still no, got- not really. No. Uh, uh, France is about 190% of GDP. Right. Australia is 205, Canada is 220. Uh, but it's still past that, that, that um, barrier that Richard identified of 150% of GDP. Right. Well, that's going to uh, hurt Europe if, they, if, if, if France turns. I mean, they still yeah. have GDP growth right now. I mean, but they are, you know, yeah, they are rioting in the streets over fuel taxes. So there's, yeah. there's certainly uh, unha- discontent amongst the, uh, amongst the people, that's for sure. Okay, Hong Kong, which is just off the scale, but Hong Kong is very much an entrepreneurial city, and it's very hard to work out you know, whether it's being used for money laundering by Chinese corporations or not. But Hong Kong's debt level is is over two hundred and fifty percent of GDP, and credit is running at about thirty percent of GDP, mm. so it's ripe for a fall. Uh, then you have Ireland, and oh my God, the Irish! I mean, what is it about that country? <laughs> they uh, just got out of trouble. Now they're going back in again. 
Oh, just unbelievable. I mean, crazy. They're just, I've, I've even got to increase the scale of my graph to see where they've got to. Yeah. Um, well, a hard Brexit's not going to help them either. I mean, not at all. And, no. and, and all of these, I guess there are circumstances which can just tip things over the edge, aren't there? Yeah. So they're at 300% of GDP as a private debt level right now. Mm. And, um, and credit, it, 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 my, my program can't even successfully graph their credit level. It's so, it's so ridiculously volatile, but they're from plus 40 to, to minus 10, but they look like they're, they're right for another crisis, uh, which is just, just what they need, of course. Um, then Korea is a possibility. The Korea again loans a large trade surplus. Luxembourg is off the scale. I mean, Luxembourg is like about the size of a suburb of Paris, so I wouldn't take uh, it started too seriously, but it's pretty crazy. Um, Malaysia is a possibility, but I don't think so. Uh, but Malaysia, Malaysia, let's just actually going down, let's just take a proper look at the scale of Malaysia. Malaysia is just below the 150% mark, um, so it's, it, but it's, it's, it's toying with being a troubled country in the future. Right. And we talked about New Zealand, of course. Yeah, New Zealand definitely goes the same way as Australia. So is it is it is pretty much the same the same ballpark as Australia? Similar. It's one hundred and eighty percent of GDP rising at the moment, and credit running at about ten percent of GDP. Mm. So it's 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 you know, Norway is another one, right. uh, which has got a extremely high level of private debt and reliance on credit. But again, it runs a trade surplus, which and, is and a it, bit of a buffer. Yeah, and it's got a big government sector as well, high taxing right. big government sector, yeah. and the same with Sweden, I'd imagine. Yeah, um, and then. Let's see. That is Singapore's another possibility. Mm. Singapore's running at about 180% of GDP as a debt level and credit running at 10%. So it could be, but again, it's got a large trade surplus. So you've, you've reeled off a lot of countries there. So, I mean, if they all sort of popped off over the next year or two, what does that mean for the world economy? Presumably there's a, there's a fair bit of contagion in all of this because, uh, I mean, the way the markets operate, this is going to be a lack of, uh, take France, for example, that's going to create contagion across the whole of Europe because there's going to be a, a lot of uh, a lot of concern and investment's going to dry up, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and this is the trouble because you've, you've got, you know, I divided the world in, in, in the last book, I divided the world under the, um, uh, the walking debt of debt, and that's countries like the UK and the USA and, uh, and Spain, Portugal, et cetera, et cetera. They had a debt crisis back in 2008 and are now limping along with low levels of credit demand, uh, but rising levels of private debt. Uh, but, but because of the low levels of credit and the high level they're starting from, they're not going to have much of a boom, so they can't have much of a bust. Bust, they're going to go from a moderate recovery to a slump again, particularly if central banks like the Federal Reserve start putting up rates. But the other ones are what I call the zombies to be. And they're the ones that got through the crisis by continuing to borrow money, with the exemplar being China, uh, but the, the actual, like, genuine the capitalist countries that did the same thing, the exemplars being Australia and Canada. Now they're running out of credit-based demand. They're reaching a, a ceiling level of private debt. We're realising why, because of the level of banking fraud. In particular, Australia, the credit spigot has been turned completely off by the bank's reaction to being exposed for the, um, well, I'd, I'd like to use a, I'd, I'd like to use an abusive term like assholes, but this is a, a family show, so I won't. Um, Who said this was uh, a family show? It's a good question. Good question. <laughs> Singapore's an interesting one because Singapore, I mean, it can't be housing driven because almost everybody in Singapore is living in uh, in government owned housing. I'm just wondering whether, in fact, you know, if, if we were looking for a way out of all of this, and we've talked about social housing in the past, is that is that part of the ha- part of the answer? Can you help drive down some of this debt? Um, by making housing more affordable by the government playing a bigger part in housing provision. Uh, I guess that doesn't get rid of the debt. It, uh, in fact, potentially makes things worse in the short term because all of a sudden everyone's got this huge debt and they've got negative equity if you drive prices down. Yeah, uh, it, 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 it's certainly possible. I mean, the thing with Singapore is that I expect that its value, its major contribution to debt is not um, the household sector, but the um, the corporate sector. So, yeah. like, just the Singapore's. Um, um, just there's actually just, just, just to do. With so, if you've got so if, you, if you've got high debt and you've got high growth, that's that's fine, isn't it? That if it's product because that's productive debt. There is a limit, though. I mean, Singapore's debt levels right now is uh, is one point seven times GDP. Mm. If I look at the household level to see how that actually compares, then household debt is. 60 percent of GDP, which is quite low. Mm. So it's it's debt levels mainly with the corporate sector, and that's 
uh, at least when you have corporate sector borrowing money, uh, that's 120% of GDP in Singapore's case. Then the corporate sector is borrowed for in, predominantly for for investment purposes, also for share buybacks, of course, in some parts of the world. But corporate debt is, I think, is less of a worry than uh, household debt, but it's also more volatile. Yeah. And uh, so if, if you have a turnaround in corporate borrowing in Singapore, then that could give you a, a credit crunch there. But again, Singapore runs a trade surplus. So, uh, and as you say, it's, it's, it's cutting out any danger of a housing bubble by having a very high level of public ownership of housing. Yeah, which could be part of the answer. Of course, it's too late to do that now. We should have done that decades ago. But is, the, is, there, is there anything you can do? Uh, to try and uh, uh, mitigate the circumstances? Is there anything the, the governments of that long list of countries can do uh, to try and stop things being as bad as they need to be? And and what? and are they, re- and again, in answering that, this will be my final question because we're already well over time. Mm-hmm. It, will it actually be as disastrous as as you're painting or will it just be a case of, yes, it's going to be, it's going to be tough for, for maybe a decade, but... Uh, you know, it, it, it's not going to, as Australia hasn't plunged itself into recession yet, you say it will, but, you know, what if it just it just experiences a, a slight slowdown but doesn't get into negative figures? I think it'll get into negative figures. But uh, and, but what the government response will be in that case is, is a massive increase in government spending. And that's what you actually, that's the only thing that stops these being deep slums that we began talking about why was the Great Depression far worse than today. It's because the government sector is that much larger now. And when there's a downturn in private spending, then the, corporate, the, the government sector makes up for it. Uh, and that will happen in Australia. And of course, that because politicians obsess about running a surplus, that'll be used as a way of castigating the Labor Party, which will be in power by then. And they'll get blamed for causing a recession because of the increase in government spending, which is like blaming cold weather on the air conditioning system turning up. Mm. Uh, but that, that is the sort of logic, unfortunately, we're Unfo- stuck with. Yeah, an unfortunate circumstance of timing. That would be in Australia's case, absolutely. But the answer would be the New Deal, to build infrastructure, to uh, perhaps not do what Kevin Rudd did, which is to, uh, to put money into people's bank accounts, which might be a, gives you a sugar hit, but also um, in Australia's case, I think almost certainly pushed up imports of flat screen TVs. But the New Deal approach of uh, let's build meaningful infrastructure projects, which are going to help us down the track. And help employment well, at the same that, time. That is partly what was, should be necessary. We saw what happened in Australia politically with that, with the disaster of the national broadband network. Mm. Um, maybe if Tony Abbott's not around, it won't be quite so bad next time round. But my way of thinking is we should actually use government money creation capability to write off private debt. Yeah. But to do it in such a way that doesn't inspire another housing bubble and that doesn't reward people who were speculators over those who didn't speculate. So I'd use that government money creation to cancel private debt. And this is one of the other points that Richard Vague's work has done. He's commissioned a study into 150 financial crises pretty much over the last 150 years around the world. And looking at them, he said in every last one, bar one or or two, you couldn't grow your way out of it. You couldn't have the GDP growing faster than debt to cause a recovery. Uh, unless you had a, a huge trade trade surplus, which was the case of, of uh, Saudi Arabia, um, the only way off was to write the debt off. Write it off fully, or just write some of it off till you write reach parts a, of it. Yeah, until yeah, you reach a sweet spot where, uh, yeah. yeah, and and that and then that gets over the unfairness element of it, I guess as well. Yeah, but don't do it in such a way that it, it, it destroys aggregate demand at the same time, which is the other 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 problem. Yeah. So when you got into a trap like this, the only way out is is, is to pay the debt down. Uh, and you, you can you can do it by using the state's capacity to create money to effectively replace credit-based money with fiat-based money. So it is feasible. Whether it'll be done, I, I simply do not believe it will. Uh, I think what's going to happen, and this is why I'm uh, my overall concern about the level of debt comes from this worry, that with the level of debt we've got ourselves in now, we won't do, we won't resolve it. We won't do anything about it to reconcile it until we're faced with an existential crisis which is what happened last time around, the existential crisis of the threat of the Nazis. At that point, the government threw a fortune into um, f- fighting the Second World War. Uh, in the UK's case in 1940, the deficit that year, the government deficit was 40% of GDP. Nobody complained about it because if you didn't spend it, you might be speaking German the next week. I made that comment in Germany recently, which went down really well. Mm. Uh, but, but that's the danger. With an existential threat, you don't care about fiscal responsibility. You want to mobilize as many real resources as possible to fight that threat. That meant, um, you know, um, spitfires and things like that during 
during World War Two, it'll mean taking on the climate in what we're facing in the, I think, in yeah. the next 10, 10 yeah. to 30 years. When we do it, the amount of government spending will be, and rationing of private sector spending as well, will mean that private sector debt levels fall dramatically. Well, we might COVID- be forced into that, but the crises that you're talking about here are going to happen well before we reach the, oh, yeah, the well tipping point where we realise that that needs to happen. Just here's a, here's a crazy thought, and it might be a crazy thought, but just want to leave you with. If we, if we were to have this debt jubilee that you're talking about, so we start to, in effect, give people money to pay off part of their debt and and to make it equitable we give money to people who don't have a debt at all so they go and spend for your life i mean could we get over the the balance of trade issue by saying but we're not going to give you straightforward currency we're going to give you money that can only be spent on stuff that's made in this country or you could have it so being given as money which can only be used to buy corporate shares Mm. which is my preferred right uh, okay so yeah so you're investing you're investing in this country yeah. And you're trying to democratising the ownership of capitalism, mm. which shows something which, uh, you know, we pay lip service to this being a democracy, but we know who gets the most votes. And uh, it comes out of the power of money. And what has been done by central banks and the rest of the world is actually in- enhance the power of those who currently own shares. So QEs cause a massive increase in inequality in America, Europe and the UK when they were already massively unequal to begin with. Yeah. My approach would be to say let's actually increase not the price of shares but the the ownership of shares across the economy. Only problem with that is, of course, when you start to give uh, Mrs. Mum and Dad all that money in their bank account, say so, so you've got to buy shares with this. You know who's going to you're going to who's going to win from that? Who's going to be the people broking those shares and uh, the finance sector will dive in again, again, which is mm. why you've got to have limits on the. You've got to say the shares going to be used to pay corporate debt down. Uh, you you need to have a fund in effect being a buffer between that. Otherwise, you're going to get another share market bubble. So there are all sorts of issues. I agree, but unless we reduce the level of private debt, we're going to be caught in a stagnant global economy. And that's that's the situation I see us approaching globally: stagnation rather than crisis. And then. We're going to realise, holy shit, we're in serious trouble with this planet of ours. What do we do? And we don't have the engineers and we don't have the investment necessary to kickstart the process properly. All right. And that is a conversation for another day. We'll leave it there. We've spoken long enough. Uh, Good one, Steve. We'll catch you again very soon. Okay, Matt. Bye. Yeah, we just took up uh, the best part of an hour of your life. Just, well, 50 minutes or so anyway. Look, next time on the Debunking Economics podcast, just how do banks influence the economy? Are we all paying for their risk-taking? And do they take risk because they know we're going to bail them out if they get into trouble? So how do we stop that happening? How do we manage the role of banks in a way that doesn't penalise us all? That is next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.